Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reef Podcast. Today's guest is an author, podcaster, and storyteller hailing all the way from South Carolina. But before we get into that, a quick reminder to go and follow the show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to the podcast. Make sure you leave us a review if you like this episode and other episodes that we've done. It really, really helps the show. There'll be a link to Podchaser in the review section down below the description. And make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. All of that support really, really helps out the show. Make sure to join the Discord and also join our Patreon. Okay, I think I'm done with the plug now. Back to our guest, author, podcaster, and storyteller, hailing all the way from South Carolina, Jonathan Phoenix. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, buddy? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. That that, that quick um, promo thing, like, I keep forgetting to do that, and I'm trying to get into, like, the, how you say, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? My, my brain's just going right now. The rhythm of doing it or, you know, like doing it at the beginning and the end. And, you know, like we all have like these processes that we need to adhere to and like try different things and whatnot. And I don't know. I always I always kind of forget with that. Like I have my process, but then sometimes I kind of like forget with these things. What's your process? Yeah. I, so <laughs> when I'm doing the podcast, I try to throw it in at the end. Yeah. You know, as I'm wrapping up, I'm like, hey, remember to go, remember, head over to dcarolinastoryteller.com, check out the podcast, check out the links, check out the merch, check out the books, get the information on my guests. Uh, but sometimes, yeah, I'm like, oh, my podcast, we've run really long this time. This went a little bit over. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay spooky, my friends. <laughs> and uh, that's that's the end of the, uh, that's the end of the podcast. You know, it's, it's just, and I'm like, I didn't, I didn't ask for any plugs. I didn't ask for reviews. I didn't remind anybody about the website. Uh, how are they going to know? Um, because it really does. It really does help us out as podcasters. Just when you leave that review, um, you know, letting us know what you think or if you share it or if you subscribe, it really does help us out. It allows us to, you know, um, get enough to put back into the podcast because it's, it's not, exactly cheap to do this i don't know i'll tell you now i've not earned a single penny from this i love doing it i would love to earn money from it but yeah you're, you're not kidding man it's a lot of hard work a lot of investment and who knows if it'll go somewhere right but one quick question i have to ask you before we sort of delve into your show and everything else um how, how long ago did you start sort of plugging like did you plug from the very beginning or did you sort of do it later on and then yeah, let's start there. <clears throat> I think I plugged a little bit uh, from the beginning because I was the I was an author first. Mm -hmm. um, I started out uh, when I started out writing. I was on TikTok, and I released you know I've released two books, and uh, then I started the podcast. So it was kind of a hey, if you want to know more, you can go check out my books sure. and and this. Um, and so I was always, I was plugging my books from the beginning. Um, when you're an author, you plug your books every chance you get, <laughs> you know, uh, Hey, go, go, we're reading my books through the flames and red coats. Every chance you get, you should read red coats. It's a great book. Um, especially if, if you're British and you want to, you know, get revenge on us shanks for the revolutionary war. It's a great book. <laughs> I, I asked because um, like, I, I guess, I've only just started doing this specific type of plugin. Like I've always kind of 
plugged here and there but I used to just like to have the attitude of let the content speak for itself but then I changed my mind a couple of years ago um, mostly based on feedback from my wonderful viewers love you guys thank you so much uh, and listeners and I don't know like it, it works a little bit for me but it's not like completely changed everything I guess I just wanted to kind of speak to you a little bit on that for a minute like it's got to be natural Hmm. And there's nothing wrong with giving your audience a call to action. Um, They're going to listen, but, you know, letting them know, letting them know how important it is to you and how much it does mean to you does give them that call to action to go and say, Hey, you know what? We're going to, we're going to help out uh, Christian and make sure that we uh, support him so that he keeps making episodes. And when you're doing this, you know, one of the problems I found is, is that I don't get a lot of interaction from my audience. You know, um, I have uh, a couple of friends that do listen to the podcast and the most interaction I'll get is, is them coming up to me like, wow, that was a really good episode. That was really, that was really good. I really liked that story or I loved this story or I wasn't into that story. Um, but that's the feedback that I get. And, you know, it's like, I would really love some more feedback. We, we podcasters, we need the feedback because it tells us what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. It's really a learning thing, even for people that have been doing this for four, five, ten years. You know, it's always an evolving craft, I've found. I, you know, I'm finishing up my first season with my podcast. You know, I have uh, – I just released an episode today. I've got two bonus episodes and two full episodes, and then my finale on Halloween night. And I'm done until January, you know, Um, and I'm taking, you know, two months off to make sure I work on next season and and get some good, uh, some good content going. Um, But like, I've learned, I've learned a lot. Like I've learned that, you know, sometimes the interviews are sometimes instead of me just telling a story, me having someone in to talk about the story I'm telling does better. And sometimes the story sells for itself. You know, sometimes they need that little back and forth. Sometimes they don't. And it's it's a give and take. And I'm still learning as I go along. So it's, I think it's always a learning process for us. And as artists and contact, content creators, we're always growing and becoming something new. That's nicely put. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. I think the interesting part about this as well, like to speak to what you just said, is that your your audience is divided. So like there's people in my audience who are very vocal and will say, you know, what they like, what they dislike, et cetera. And it's brilliant. It's really helpful. Um, I do also think though, there are like a, there is always going to be a subsection of your audience who are just quiet. You know, they, they really like the content. Obviously they keep listening, they keep watching, but they don't necessarily comment. And that doesn't necessarily reflect in a negative way. It's just that, you know, you're just listening. You know, it's the same way that if you're maybe your favorite live streamers, for example, maybe you just kind of want to sit, listen to it, have it on in the background, whatever. But you don't always necessarily want to engage. I know of myself when I listen to live streams, I don't tend to engage. Mostly because like there's about a thousand comments so you'll never get seen. But (laughs) it's that kind of thing of like, you know, people interact with content differently, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then let's not forget that, like you said, you know, you might be think they might be thinking, oh, there's a thousand contents. I'm never going to hear from this person. Um, you know, uh, when I started uh, doing interviews, because, you know, I started off, I was just going to tell stories. And I had someone say, hey, you should 
you know, do podcasts with other people and, you know, and get some of their stories and some of their feedback. So I reached out to an author and a friend of mine, um, the demon folklorist, Victoria J. Her book comes out next month. She's a really good friend of mine. And I was like, hey, do you want to do my podcast with me? You have a podcast. I have a podcast. I would love to have you come on my show, especially because you're the demon expert. And I've told some ghost stories that could be demons. And we want to hash that out. And she was like, yeah, sure. And she was supposed to be my first guest. And it kept getting pushed back and kept getting pushed back. And I ended up having another guest on. He was a uh, paranormal podcaster out of Tennessee. And uh, just so happened, I got him on the show after telling a story of uh, Julia Brown, who was a uh, voodoo priestess in the early 1900s in New Orleans, near New Orleans. And she predicted that a town was going to be destroyed on the day she died or wow. at, as she was at, on, at her death. Um, she died. And on the day of her funeral, a hurricane came up and literally swept three towns in New Orleans off the map. Um, and of oh course, my. everybody said, Oh, she cursed the town. But, you know, looking at who she was as a person, she was warning the town more than likely. She knew something was coming somehow, some way she knew. And, you know, we had a really good conversation. My entire episode was about her cursing the town. But after talking to somebody who knew the background and had the information, because he grew up in that swamp where, you know, the legend came from. And he's like, yeah, it was probably more along the lines, you know. So getting the guests in really changes things because you learn so much. And I really love doing it now. I have to just ask you on, on that specific story. Were there any major clues in sort of her particular life story that would lead one to believe that that would be the kind of the final outcome so, for everybody? What's interesting is, is that the, the, you know, with ghost stories, and this is one of the things that I love doing about my podcast um, because you learn more when you start digging into it. Mm -hmm. So with Julia Brown in particular, um, the legend is, is that as she was getting older and dying, she was mad at the town because they took her for granted. And so she would sing songs and she began to sing a song about how the, the town was going to get wiped away when she died. The town was going to go with her when she died. And she sung prophetic songs. Well, the thing is, is that um, Miss Brown, based off of her history, she was uh, a she was a wet nurse. She helped birth kids. She helped take care of people. You know, she was she did practice voodoo, but you know the stigma around voodoo is, is that it's bad. But voodoo is actually a religion of peace, harmony, and help. And voodoo actually integrates in with Catholicism. Interesting. It's it's something that's kind of been mixed in. There are a lot of voodoo practitioners that are devoutly Catholic <laughs> because it's not supposed to be a bad thing. We only paint it as a bad thing in the movies because it makes a good scapegoat. Um, and so being that she was this, you know, very giving and caring soul, 
it doesn't make sense for the sudden switch at the end. So the evidence based on her past and how she treated her family, how she treated the town is, is that when auntie Julia was sitting there singing the songs, she was trying to warn the people and um, they didn't listen. And, you know, remember if she was such a bad person, there were 26 people at her funeral hmm. when the storm hit. They went to evac. They went to run and hide in a train depot, and the train depot was destroyed. Um, you know, these people were there, you know, celebrating the end of her life, not celebrating that she was gone, but celebrating her life. You don't get a group of people coming to celebrate your life if you're a horrible person. You know, so she was paid. She was paid respect. She was treated with respect, um, and for some reason, she knew that a storm was coming. Um, you know, you can take that any way that you want. She made a guess. She was right, and nobody listened to her. Hurricane came and took the towns away. And it's very interesting because the level of destruction from the hurricane is similar to the level from Hurricane Katrina. So when you start looking at it, you go, wait a minute. They knew that something like this could happen because they had it happen almost 100 years before, and they didn't do anything about it. So when you look at Katrina, you're like, oh, this wasn't a surprise to them. This wasn't new. They knew something like this could happen. As as in, like, just predicting weather weather patterns? Yeah, like well, so no, they would have the destruction that a hurricane could cause. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, everybody and uh, a lot of people in the the government surrounding New Orleans tried to say that they couldn't have ever expected something like this to happen. But then, when you learn the history, something like that happened not even a hundred years ago. Well, a hundred years before, um, it was 1915, I think, is when the hurricane wiped out the towns in the Mantock Swamp. And then 2004, Hurricane Katrina hits New Orleans 30 miles away. The same level of destruction, basically, only it was a grand or the same type of destruction, basically, only on a grander scale because you had a higher population base and no preparation. You know, it was once again, why didn't you pay attention and listen? No, no. I mean, it's a good point, especially if, if, if a particular location is is ill prepared um yes it just it just affects you in 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 a different way i mean this is not even remotely the same thing but when there's snow on a pretty big scale in london they're always really really ill prepared for it especially like um travel like trains stuff like that it's pretty much all just out of service at that point whereas the rest of the country is very used to having snow, let's say, in the north, it happens every year. Now, we're starting to see that change, uh, certainly over the last, I'd say, 10, maybe 15 years, it's, it's changed considerably. But like, when I was a kid, like, snow in London was just very, like, you get, like, a, a laughable amount, you know, like, nothing. But it, it's amazing how it puts everything to a standstill, and there's just basic things that people, that that, that you don't have that you would have elsewhere, like things like just having making making sure you have the salt that you need to like melt the snow and stuff like that, and just like clearing the roads and, and so on. Um, I live in the south of America. Mm-hmm. If it snows down here, even the slightest bit, 
we think that it's the end of the world. Like um, if we start seeing snow, nobody knows what to do when there's snow around here. Um, you know, uh, this far south, snow is like apocalyptic to us. We, we, uh, you know, uh, the kids love it, but anybody over the age of 18 is just like, oh, no, it's snow. We, people don't know how to drive. Everything shuts down. It's just, it's a mess when it snows down here. I suppose the scary it's scarier like the further away you are from I suppose like inner city stuff like that you know if, especially if you're yeah. in like a rural location I mean yeah. you're just you're screwed really I mean like you know access to to resources and stuff and yeah I hope you, you know, went to the grocery store yesterday right yeah like stuff like that becomes a very real um problem in those instances for people and it's it's yeah it's interesting it's interesting though Yes, it is. Let's go back to talking about your podcast. I want to just kind of shine a light on this. So it's called Let Me Tell You a Story, which is brilliant. Yes. I, lo- I love I love the name. Um, talk to us a little bit about like how this came to be, like the idea behind it. And and like, I know you've sort of explained a little bit about the structure, but just kind of expand upon that a little bit for us. So um, I've always been a bit of a storyteller. Um, I used to love hearing ghost stories and legends and things like that when I was younger. I grew up in Georgetown, South Carolina. Um, if you're not aware, it's 60 miles north of Charleston. It's all just swarming with history and legend. Revolutionary War and everything took place there. Civil War and everything took place there. So you, you grow up and you hear all these stories. And the way of telling stories by word of mouth is an art. It's an art form. And so I would listen to these stories and I'd want to be able to tell the stories. So when I got older and I had kids and I had nieces and I had nephews, um, every Halloween would come around and I would sit around and I would tell the stories to the kids. Um, I had this, uh, at one point I had this uh, Metallica skull that I called Frank and uh, it, it was uh, it was supposed to be an ashtray, but it was Metallica. And I'd put a little candle in his mouth and light the candle, and I'd sit Frank down, and I'd tell the ghost stories to the kids uh, every year at Halloween. Um, uh, and until the youngest was 12, I think. You know, just keep telling the stories. Um, and then eventually, you know, it, it would come up, and I'd tell the stories to friends, and I'd tell stories about uh, my time as a firefighter. And I was on TikTok. I had just finished my second book or no, I had just, I had published my second book. I was working on my third and I was telling a story um, about um, Lavanya Fisher, who she's a serial killer from Charleston. I can get into that later. But one of my coworkers looks at me and goes, I love listening to you tell stories. You should do that. And it was just like, okay, I'll do that. Um, so I recorded uh, four episodes, um, and it was um, Lavanya Fisher. I uh, told a story about fighting a fire. I told a story about uh, a time I, I dealt with a ghost, and I told another story. I can't remember what the fourth one was. But those were the first four episodes, and I kind of had those all lined up, ready to go. And then I started the podcast with those lined up to come out every week and then started just recording different stories. And based off of, you know, the Lavanya Fisher was a huge hit. 
the firefighting story didn't take uh didn't really go very far um and so it's kind of been just okay i'm gonna go with this story that story didn't do that good okay let's try back this way and it's kind of course correcting all the way through but that's really where it came from was somebody looked at me and said i love hearing you tell stories do it again and and if nikki happens to see this thank you nikki uh nikki's also my uh one of my only patreon supporters so thank you because that was your idea this is all your fault <laughs> i gotta say that there's something to be said for how captivating it can be when you find someone who knows how to tell a good story and you mentioned that earlier about how it, it takes a certain kind of skill set to be able to tell these stories to people so i guess my next question to you is in your opinion what does it mean to be a good storyteller you have to get animated in the story um you don't necessarily have to do the voices, but it is a lot about delivery. Um, sometimes you got to take that Shatner-esque, you know, cadence, you know, if you know William Shatner's cadence, you know, the, Oh God, no, that stop this from happening. <laughs> that would drive you know, me nuts. Sh Shatner's <laughs> cadence is because of his medical issues, but oh, wow. that cadence, the dramatic pauses, the, knowing when to stop, knowing how to enunciate. It takes a lot of getting animated in the story, knowing how to deliver it. And some of that you can't learn. It's just natural. And others you have to practice over time. Um, watching how others do it, seeing how they deliver their stories. Um, I do a lot. I do listen to a lot of podcasts now, which I didn't before because I want to hear what everybody else is doing so I can improve what I'm doing. I like to, I like to listen in and go, okay, all right. I like how this was delivered. I didn't like how that was delivered. I like what they did there. You know, um, some people, they, they do the voices and they can change their voice and they can go up here. They can go down here. I'm not really good at that. I'd say um, you're pretty good. Sounds pretty good. <laughs> you know, my son is really good at that. I'm yeah. mediocre. But, you know, they do all the different voices, and I, I don't do the different voices. Um, I had to find my own take on it, and I had to make it my own. And, you know, when I'm doing a story, I do the research. So I'll give you the story or legend as it's told, and then I'll give you the facts. Because I find that's the more, that's the more entertaining part. Now, granted, if, you know, I was trying to scare somebody, I'd just tell them the story. Leave the facts out. Who needs the facts? Story's better. I got to say, though, like, um, there is something to be said for, like, the way a story's been told. And obviously, you covered some of that with, mm -hmm. with your example there with the cadence and the pauses, the dramatic, you know. For instance, I always bring this up, but I'm a huge professional wrestling fan. And I got to say that some of my favorite wrestlers or wrestling personalities have often been amazing storytellers. And it's something about a combination of, of their intensity, maybe their conviction, their passion, all these different things. And they all do it in different ways. So a few examples for the listeners at home, uh, CM Punk, Jim Cornette, are some good examples of good storytellers who they do it in very different ways. 
CM Punk as an example is very passionate and and he can kind of win you over and pull you in and he often uses the example of um you know like he's gonna bring in the house which is like a wrestling term for like this is how i bring them in the building you know bring them in lure them in into Mm -hmm. you know caring essentially whereas jim Cornette was always very heated and passionate and he often played a bad guy and would kind of you know shout you down and stuff like that another good example is um jake the snake roberts who to our point right about the whole he instead of every other wrestler in, in his time was like, I'm going to kick your ass at the best paper you like all that. But Jake would just be really quiet and just be like, here's what I'm going to do to you. At the next pay-per-view, I'm going to lure you in, brother. And then we're going to go one-on-one. And you're going to know that I'm serious. Because when I lure you in, there'll be the end of you. And it's just like really intense. And you feel like a sinister kind of undertone in there. You're like, oh. And it's like that. Whatever that element is, being able to maybe like convince people that you you mean what you say or, or being passionate in some way or do you know what I mean? Because like I often find sometimes when you're telling a story, the story doesn't even necessarily have to be that good, but the way you tell it is everything. Well, remember, nothing sells a story better than a good villain. Sure, and in, in the and particularly in wrestling um you know a lot of people give give wrestling a lot of crap but there is a lot of art artistry that is done not just in their movements in the ring but in how they talk and how they deal with each other if you ever see these guys outside you would not believe that they were the people that were that were just on stage trash talking each other um and not only that but the ones that can change their characters um a good example is uh um paul the voice uh hunter Hearst helmsley mm, mm-hmm. uh sean michaels the two of them going from uh being single wrestlers to the goofy dx to the just downright degenerate dx um then you know sean michaels going to the professional commissioner uh, with DX backing him, the changes that these characters were able to make in evolving. Um, another good example would be the Undertaker's character, which and not only um, continuously evolved throughout his career, but uh, he was able to give you, there was a real story with mm. that character. Even when he went from being uh, the dead man to, the American badass riding around on the motorcycle. You know, there was no more hat and gloves. You know, he was just this big dude on a motorcycle that just beat people up. Even when he went to that level, um, he was still to giving you a story. Um, uh, Dwayne Johnson, the rock Johnson, you know, a great at delivery. Um, macho man, Randy Savage, you know, <laughs> oh yeah, the macho man is here today to tell you something, brother. You know, he was able to just he he delivered in such a way that for one, you always knew it was him. You didn't have to be in the room. You heard that voice and you knew it was Macho Man. Um it didn't matter if he was in a cartoon, didn't matter if he was in a movie fighting Spider-Man, 
no matter where he was, you knew Macho Man. You knew if somebody was, if somebody even said the words, oh, yeah, you immediately went Macho Man. You knew what they were talking about. He was iconic in that delivery. Um, another good example is Sting. Mm. Sting did it without saying a word. Sting put on uh, Sting put on the crow makeup and then the crow outfit and literally just did his entire storytelling for years with just his mannerisms, his look, his body. There's a lot that goes into um, professional wrestling when it comes to telling a story. And, you know, a lot of that you bring into when you're telling a story to something. Those are the things that make a good storyteller is, you know, these professional wrestlers are great examples of it. You know, you point out actors all the time. Oh, this actor's great. That actor's great. Yeah, put that actor up on up in front of a whole bunch of people and let them go. Go see somebody on Broadway. They're great. I think something that's really like, yeah, I totally agree with all of that. Um, I've spoken on the show about storytelling with wrestling. I'll defend wrestling to the end. I don't care. Wrestling is amazing. It's brilliant. Wrestlers don't get nearly enough credit for the amount of hard work they put into commitment to character, acting, method acting, their storytelling, everything. Like it's there's so much in wrestling from a psychological perspective to dissect, and it really is incredible what some of these people pull off and i'll never be um i'll never stop being amazed but one thing i find that's really interesting that i've not really seen anywhere else in wrestling is um these shoot interviews so for anyone who doesn't know what that is you can go on youtube and you can find like hundreds of these interviews with professional wrestlers who basically to shoot in the wrestling industry is when you tell the truth when you <laughs> like you actually tell behind the scenes stuff or you know you kind of reveal things maybe that you shouldn't you know and in the context of on a wrestling show they would often do this in order to kind of pull you lure you in with the story because everyone know all the fans know that it's it's a work it's not real etc right but with these stories the whole point was to kind of lure you in where maybe two-thirds of the story you're being told you know is to be true but then that third element is the lie, the work. And it's like, oh, I know this is true. And I know this is true. But hang on. They're telling me this. Oh, I don't. And that's how they lure you in and bring you in to invest it in the story. Mick Foley was good at that. One of the absolute when best. He, yeah. when, he broke, when he broke away from just being mankind um, and, you know, they started introducing him as Mrs. Foley's baby boy. <laughs> he he yeah. literally would be like, let me, let me talk about, let me talk about all these things I've done in my career that none of these other guys would do. That has made me the person I am. That shows me, that shows you how dangerous I am. All these things that I've done, you know, I started at this age and I did this and, and Mick Foley would deliver his stories in that way, you know, doing callbacks to things that he did. And then he'd bring it forward and then he'd start getting a higher pitch and he'd start getting more excited. And, you know, he, he kind of the anger in him would, you'd seem like the anger was rising and his pitch would get higher. And, you know, the things that he would say would just get more and more violent. And you're like, Oh, oh wow. He's crazy. 
and he's actually a very caring individual and a loving father. And oh yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. What you were saying before you know, about how how wrestlers and 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 like how they are in real life are two different things. I mean, with some wrestlers, they live the gimmick. Like Hulk Hogan is just Hulk Hogan. Ric Flair is just Ric Flair. Like that's the real whoa, person. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's talk about. Well, no, Ric Flair is just Ric Flair. Hundred percent. I've actually met Ric Flair four times. Damn. Um, I am and. What is amazing Sorry, is, is that the last time that I met him, he remembered me. Oh, amazing. That's and I'm cool. just like, I'm, you know, I, I've met him and it, it had been several years. I, Flair, um, frequented Myrtle Beach where I grew up. So I, I had seen him at the Garden City Pier before. Uh, I had seen him uh, at, at another appearance. I had actually gone to a WW, a WCW show. Uh, and seen and met him and several other wrestlers. Um, and then I went to a hockey game in Charleston, and it was Ric Flair night. Um, and the person I was with wanted to go get their photo with Ric Flair. And I walk up, and he's like, John, how you doing? And I was just like, wow, that's lovely. And um, I, was, I, was, I was, it was a date night. And, you know, the photographer wanted to put Flair in the middle. And he's like, no, I'm not doing that to my guy. I will stand over here with my guy. We're all going to huddle together. You know, I'm not going to get it. No, I'm not going to do that to him. Uh, we're going to do the photo like this. And, you know, he's just a very, he's always Flair, but he's not always Flair. Right. Um, if you know what I'm saying, there are, well, like Hulk Hogan is always Hulk Hogan. When, when I say like he, Flair is always Flair, what what I mean is obviously like he's not like bad guy trying to screw you over, Flair. I mean more like um, the party goer gimmick, like that. That is legitimately him as a human being. As more well, he he's, he definitely is a party guy, mm. but he also does have a laid back side to him. He's right. not the he's not the kiss dealing, wheeling and dealing. Right. Yeah. yeah. He, he is the he is the limousine riding, you know, jet flying, you know. Uh, good time having uh, and very friendly, very genuine individual. And he's very uh, humbled yeah. by the love that he gets from his fans. Uh, he, he really does. He's come from, you know, he's come up from the bottom. He's become one of the biggest names in an industry. Uh, everybody knows who Ric Flair is. Everybody knows the woo. Everybody knows the four horsemen. When you hold up the four, they know what that means. Um, he's become an iconic symbol, even to people that don't know wrestling. They know flair. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, sometimes he's used as the, oh, look at this guy. Obviously, he's the reason wrestling is bad. He's even used as, you know, the derogatory. But look at how horrible this is. Look at him. He hit the guy. He low-blowed the guy. You know, he did this. He did that. That's like, the best stuff about wrestling. What? That's that's, that's <laughs> Ric Flair for you, you know? Um, dirtiest player in the game. That's the best but thing ever. Yeah. It is it, he's also a very humbled individual by it. Sure. Um and, and so, you know, I was really it, meeting him was probably a great experience for me. Um, because I got to see that, you know. These people that you see on the television, that you see in these things, even when you see them in the promos, um, there there's a different side to them that you never get to see unless you meet them in person. 
a modern wrestling example, which I thought was really good to this point, was um, are you familiar with Eddie Kingston, the AEW wrestler? Um, Kingston. Kingston. He was I in. Think so. He was in NWA for a bit, and then he's he's been on AEW television. He's cut. I, I still got to explain his gimmick. He's kind of a brawler. Um, I think he's from New York. So he's got that kind of like the you know. Brooklyn kind of vibe or sorry I don't I can't remember where he's from but that's kind of I, I his don't... setup he's like a brawler you know kind of kind of deal but I remember one time he was talking about his character and he mm-hmm. said his character is essentially what he was like when he was say like 18 19 years old amped up to like the nth degree you know like that's not him mm-hmm. as a human being now but he and to the point took inspiration from his life, took something that was real and turned it into something. And I feel like a a lot of these wrestlers tend to do that. Like sometimes they just create a character out of nothing like Sting did with the crow, which was obviously, as we know, was based on the crow, but also other elements and he he put it together. Right. But then you get, you get these wrestlers who will take elements from their real life and try to blend it with fiction or amp it up in some way and then that's what creates the character. I always find that interesting, particularly when they take elements from their real life, because it's blurring the lines a little bit. It's like, where does the character end and then the human start and, and vice versa? Because sometimes you just, you learn about a completely different person. Like, for example, um, Bray Wyatt, who we lost recently, is a good example mm-hmm. of this, because when he passed away, we were hearing all these stories about the man Wyndham Rotunda and what he was like. And it's like night and day is like, obviously, and obviously cause like the, um, the fiend and Bray Wyatt was a character, but you yeah. know, I think the only real, I'm just theorizing here, but like the only element of Wyndham that was in that character was his mind for storytelling and, and his creative, um, mind and and that was all him but then the character is a character kind of thing yeah so he's he's a great again great example of a good storyteller Mm -hmm. um and a great example of you know the difference between the character that you see and the real person Uh, another good one is andre the giant you know Interesting. He okay. was okay. So everybody saw Andre the Giant. He's Andre the Giant. Oh, I big yeah. dog. You know, and he was always the bad guy. He was supposed to be this unstoppable bad guy. He didn't really do a lot of promos. Um, have you ever heard of the movie The Princess Bride? I have heard of it. Yeah, I've not seen it, but I've okay. seen clips. I've seen his part in it and everything. So the cast of The Princess Bride spent a lot of time working with Andre the Giant, this big man who are, and granted, wrestlers too have talked about him. Andre as a person was a very peaceful, kind, you know, nonviolent soul. He was, you know, Andre as a wrestler was this big hulking guy. He slapped that hand on you, you know. You know, he started with the freaking big hand moves. Um he was just this monster you'd be terrified of, but as a person, as just an ordin as just an ordinary guy you'd meet out on the street, he was just a lovable giant. You know, he was yeah, he was huge. You know, uh Billy Crystal said it right when he looked at him and went, You are the brute squad. <laughs> he was the brute squad, but you know, 
he didn't want to be. He wanted sure. to be everybody's friend. He wanted to be nice to everybody. He wanted to, he wanted to, he wanted to, you know, be kind and generous and caring. And he was up until his untimely passing in the nineties. Um, and, you know, a lot of wrestlers who worked with him, remember him fondly. And, you know, a lot of wrestlers looked up to him because he was able to deliver the big man um, who, you know, put on this, the big man uh, who was so terrifying, but still be himself outside of the ring. And I think he inspired a lot of the big man wrestlers that we've seen in the past. Um, and, and I'm not up on the current wrestling. I've kind of been out of it for a few years. I get it. Um, I, get it. I, I, my, my favorites have all, you know, uh, gone to pasture. They don't even get in the ring anymore. Uh, so it's kind of like, it's a new, you know, I'll look at it every once in a while and be like, Oh, I remember the days when, you know, the rock would come out and say, it doesn't matter what your name is, you know, or stone cold would say, that's the bottom line. And, you know, I'd get all excited. NWO would come out. I remember those days. What in the world are they doing now? What, what is it? Who is this? I don't it's, know who this is. Modern wrestling is, is very hit and miss. There is still excellent storytelling and wrestling going on, but where it used to be, you know, pretty much the whole card, now it's like small segments or certain feuds, certain matches. Like the, wrestling is still alive and well, but it's just not, you know, it's just not the attitude era anymore. It's not the golden era anymore. Like the things are different. And obviously things change. Uh, yes. I think I, I think the problem with modern wrestling. I mean, I could go on all day about this. I did an episode recently um, that people should check out on on wrestling. The biggest problem is that there's too much focus on the in ring product and not enough focus on the tangible story being told. Now, to be clear, you can tell a story in the ring. You can absolutely mm -hmm. do that. You can have two guys just or two girls get in the ring, have a fight. And you can tell a story as you go along, but they don't even do that. There's a Hell lot of cell between mankind and Undertaker told the story. There you go. Um, <coughs> and there and there was a story going into that as well. So mm -hmm. I look at it one. right. I always look at it as like investment. You know, the story pulls you in, and then the match is like the conclusion or the continuation of the story. You know, and a story obviously has a beginning, beginning, middle, and end, and there you go. But that's what always draw, draws you in: the stakes at hand, um, all the different things that happen along the way. If, for example, very basic story, but if it's a person champ, uh, chasing the championship, then it's mm -hmm. you know what are the struggles that they had to go through to get there. A good modern example right now, which is being told over a long term period, is Cody Rhodes trying to become the the wwe champion and he's already lost against roman reigns the big guy the main guy right we've already yeah. seen that loss and a lot of people walked out and that going ah oh, well it's over then the story's over it's not going to happen and no he's got to have the comeback exactly this is what triple h said at the end of wrestlemania um in the press conference i believe or sometime afterwards he said the story continues and that was, and just re recently, um, on the past SmackDown, they had like a bit of an altercation, like a bit of a stare down. And it's like, oh, mm -hmm. and already that's brought people in. They're like excited because this is the first time they've been face to face for a long time. 
And that's, ooh, and it's reignited a fire in there because it's part of a longer story arc. And and so I'm going to get away from wrestling a little bit. Yeah, please do. Yeah, I just use it as um, an example. But <laughs> but wrestling and comic books okay, kind yeah. of work in the same way if you look at it. And the comic books have had their, you know, you had the golden age, then you had the silver age. And to a lot of people, the silver age comics are ridiculous. Um, then we got the bronze age. Um which was the 80s, dark and gritty. Uh, then we hit the, you know, then we hit the kind of, um, what do we call it? The dark, the dark times. And now we've got the modern age of the comics. Um, you know, the Bronze Age, you had your, your, your um, killing joke, Dark Knight Returns, Dark Phoenix Saga. Um <clears throat> And then as it, as it started transferring, as it started transitioning, you started getting into comic books that really started messing with you. Uh, we killed Superman. We broke Batman's back. Um, we uh, got a new Spider-Man. You know, we, we did things. Captain America died. We did things that, well, not we, but they did things in the comics and in these stories that were these long-running stories that affected major change, but they also changed the stories with the times. And a lot of people, they pick up a comic book and they go, Oh, I don't like it anymore. It's not this. And it's like, you, you don't understand stories have to evolve. You know, your characters aren't always going to be the same because the story is going to evolve. You know, if Batman was still the Batman, he was in 1930s running around using guns. Um, you know, he wouldn't be the character that he is today. You know, if he was the Batman from the 1960s, you know, he the Batman from the 1960s was a duly deputized officer of the law. Yeah. You know, he, he had a badge. He worked with the police. He wasn't a vigilante. He was a cop. He was a cop in a costume. That's who the Batman was. Um. Oh. <laughs> outrageous accusations no, it's, it's it's the truth it's true it's, it's the true. truth um adam west's batman was a cop in a costume uh but adam west was How a great you? batman adam yeah. west was probably uh if you were to rate them all on their delivery of the character adam west may be the best batman now is he the best overall no no um, that argument can be given to Keaton. You can say that it was Bale. You can say that it was uh, Affleck. You know, Batfleck. honestly, it was Kevin Conroy. For anybody who doesn't know, Kevin Conroy voiced him in Batman the Animated Series, um, and he's gone now. But Kevin Conroy is the best Batman, period. Uh, but, you know, that character changed and evolved. And it wasn't the same character that Adam West played when Michael Keaton put on the Batsuit, when Kevin Conroy voiced him. The Joker wasn't the same character in Cesar Romero's time that he was when Jack Nicholson played him or when Mark Hamill voiced him or when Heath Ledger delivered his performance. Yeah, that's all I want to say about the Joker. Um... You know, in the comic books, 
these deliveries of these characters as they evolve over time, it's storytelling changing with the times. And when you're telling a story, um, sometimes you have to change your approach. So the story is always going to change. So I can tell you a story and then you go deliver that story to somebody else and your delivery is going to be different than mine. Your story is going to change. You might find, you know, parts of the story that you think deserve more attention than I do. You know, you might decide the character needs to shift a little bit because it is a story. And going back to this, my first episode is on LaVanya Fisher. Now, LaVanya Fisher in Charleston is called rumored to be America's first female serial killer. Wow. Yes, okay. her first female serial killer. LaVanya Fisher was executed. Uh, well, she executed herself, really, because on the gallows, she looked at people and said, if you have any messages for the devil, give them to me now, for I shall see him directly. And then she walked off the gallows. She oh didn't gosh. let them hang her. She hung herself. And the legend is that she planned all these murders and she did this and she did that. But the truth of the matter is, is Lavanya Fisher wasn't executed for murder. She was executed for highway robbery because she was accused of being part of a gang that were robbing of highwaymen that were robbing merchants coming into Charleston in the early in the early 1800s, just before the war of 1812. She was accused of killing these men. She wasn't accused of killing these men. She was accused of robbing them. Um, there was never any murders tied to her. But there were so many unsolved murders and so many bodies found that 12 years after her death, a writer came in and changed the story. He told his version of the story, and his version of the story, Lavanya Fisher, who was a very meek woman who, you know, obedient to her husband, very pretty, but not really dolled up, became this very strong-willed woman who dressed to the nines, who planned out these murders so meticulously that in some versions of the story, she had a mechanical device so that when she pulled a liver, the bed that her victims were sleeping on would drop out from underneath them and they would fall into a pit of spikes and die. Oh my gosh. And then they would expose, dispose of the bodies and she would take all their, all the ill gotten gain. Uh, and she was just this murderous woman. And supposedly she strolled through the streets in her pristine white dress with her held head, held head up high. And, you know, when they paraded these people through the streets, it was so that the townsfolk could kind of ridicule them and yell at them, but no one dare spoke when Lavanya walked because they were all afraid of her. Well, in reality, she rode a carriage from the courthouse to the gallows. She was protected the entire way, so nobody could. She was very meek. She was dressed probably in a very torn and worn dress, and up until she realized that no one was going to save her. She still thought that, you know, it was when she hit the gallows that she flipped and started cussing and yelling and screaming and fighting because she realized no one was going to save her. 
she honestly thought that this can't happen to me. Nobody's going to hang me. My husband's going to stop it. Well, her husband was already hung and dead because he was one of the highwaymen. He accosted someone and they got caught. So it's really interesting how there's a bunch of dead bodies. So Lavanya Fisher is the serial killer in the story. But in reality, no one knows where the dead bodies are. No one knows who killed the dead bodies. Lavanya Fisher was executed for being associated with a gang of highwaymen who were responsible for several robberies, several murders that are unsolved, and were all executed together. She was executed with the gang because her husband was the leader of the gang. She may have never had any involvement whatsoever, but she died by association. But in the legend, she's a vicious, murderous person. And that's how stories evolve sometimes. And that's also one of the things I like to do it with my show is I like to go, okay, here's this legend. It's a great legend. Oh, by the way, here's the real story. Just so you don't go around thinking I'm besmirching this person's good name. Look, here's what really freaking happened, okay? Just, just calm down. She's not really out there walking around in a white dress. She might be walking around in something else, but it's not her, okay? There you go. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I really, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I think it speaks volumes about, um, as you said, like this idea of like how will you tell a story? You know, yeah. like it's it's that, and also just the fact that you know it's a bit like Chinese whispers. Really, a story gets told a million times, and it, it evolves and changes to something where sometimes it's so far removed from what the story actually is that it's not even it's just a work of fiction at this point. <laughs> if it's based on a true story, I mean. Yeah, but um, also, you know, we get our legends, we get a lot of our history. Um, all of it comes from storytelling, you know. And, you know, in 150, 200 years, will they think that a man from space actually leaped the Empire State Building and stopped the locomotive? Will they think that some guy dressed up as a bat to fight crime in a drug-addled city? You know, in three, four hundred years, are they going to think that? No, but they might still be telling the stories. You know, they might know that, you know, it's, it's not real. But those stories will still be there, you know. We tell stories today of, you know, the gods of Olympus. Zeus and his thunderbolt. You know, we tell stories of Beowulf, you know, fighting the Grendel. You know, sure, maybe something along those lines happened, but it probably isn't as grand as the story that we make of it. But the story is what spreads the legend and it's what keeps the history alive because there are aspects in the story that have a deeper meaning. Um, you know, and that's, that's the beauty of storytelling. And that's one of the reasons why I do it is because I'm keeping into stories alive. And you got some brilliant stories. I want to kind of pick your brain on that and, and try a few different avenues on this, on this perspective. Um, scariest paranormal story you've, you've ever experienced or been told. 
Um, so there is an episode called The Graveyard on my podcast, and it is something that actually happened to me. Um, the, the long and short of it is my friends and I went into a graveyard one night, um, and we were challenged to walk around the graveyard. Um, I ended up being the only one to actually complete the walk. Everybody else kind of jumped the fence and ran. Um, but as I was walking, someone came up behind me and was kind of coming towards me. I couldn't really see who they were, but I like screamed at them and kept on walking. And I thought it was my friends. They all tell me that it's not them. I'm mad because I think they're lying to me. And so I go back towards the graveyard because I'm going to go back in there and prove to them that it was them. And we were across the street sitting in front of one church and the graveyard was on the other side of the street. And I walked across the street and I put one foot on the sidewalk and they were all trying to stop me. They were like, no, don't go in there. Don't go in there. And just the scream erupted. And we, it sounded like it came from the graveyard. I don't know where it came from. Um, but they all ran. And I took a couple of seconds to evaluate my position, my life, the things that were going on. I was 12 at the time. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, then I ran, too. Yeah. And um, I booked it. And uh, even though I was typically the slowest, I beat all of them back to the house, up the stairs and into the room. Uh, because I wasn't staying around to find out by myself what was going on. And to this day, I still don't know what actually happened. Um, you know, I know what I heard. I know what we all experienced. And I know that we all got so scared that we ran a block and a half back to my best friend's house uh, to hide from it for the rest of the night. Um, so that what I, what I would say would probably be the scariest experience I, I've uh, ever really had. Um, I think the scariest tale that I've ever told may be, uh, Lavanya. Yeah. I think she may be the, uh, the scariest one. I, a lot of the, the thing with a lot of ghost stories is, is they're not always scary. Sure. Yeah. Um, I suppose sometimes they just leave you with just endless questions, which is, yeah. Kind of a good good thing and a bad thing, depending on your your outlook. <laughs> well, you know there are there are um, occasionally ghosts are you're more sad when you hear about the ghosts. You know, you're like, oh, really? Like they've been doing this for two hundred years? Like, really, man, that sucks. You know, wow. You know, there's not a lot of the ghost is going to rip your face off stories. Really, you know, the more re the more uh, deeper stories. Um is this person went through these horrible things, you know, or this, this trying time that this person had, they lost their life and now they're stuck here. I they're remember, just reliving it constantly. I remember when I was living in Europe, um, there was someone I knew who allegedly could speak to the dead. Mm -hmm. And she told me that in this particular place she lived, there was a guy who unfortunately had passed away uh, from like a road accident or he'd been run over or something like that. And this guy would frequently come to her, the ghost, and would ask her like, what's going on? Where am I? I don't understand. And she would keep saying and communicating with him and saying, 
but there's nothing I can do. I don't, I don't know what, how can I really help you? I can't, there's nothing I can say or do. And, but there was like, con- and this is what really fascinated me about this was this idea that the ghost would ask questions, but not, it wouldn't really take on board anything. It, there was just, it was just perpetually in a state of confusion. And like people often talk about when they hear about ghosts, either they see a ghost or, you know, experience it or even communicate with it. Often what they talk about is this idea of an echo. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not even like something you can interact with. It's more just like a flash in time. Maybe it's repeating something that happened or maybe the ghost is trapped in a perpetual state. You know, we hear about like trapped spirits and this idea that they just keep repeating, they keep, you know, walking around the halls of whatever area that they maybe even they died in, or maybe it's a familiar space, a home, something like that. Mm-hmm. Or or even the ghosts that supposedly haunt places, you know. Um people talk about this idea that the energy stays there. It's trapped there. Like bringing it back to wrestling as an example, I'm always fascinated with that the the story of Bruiser Brody and how in those showers um where Bruiser Brody was stabbed, allegedly. Um because that's still left open and I don't understand how but yeah, well, anyway. I remember hearing uh Tammy Sitch tell a story thereafter about how her and Chris Candido had gone wrestling there in like the early two thousands and they'd been told, Oh, it, you have to go check out the showers, you have to go check it out. It's really it's you know, you've got to go experience it for yourself. And she mm-hmm. said that, like, in Puerto Rico, apparently it's, like, always, like, really, really hot. Like, um, there's no real air, you know. It's this very sweaty kind of feeling wherever you go if you're wrestling in, in arenas there. So, like, everywhere's hot. But she said as soon as she walked into the shower, it was, like, deathly cold. And it had no business being cold. There was no air conditioning. There was no windows. There was no nothing. It was it was just suddenly really cold. And I often think about what I just outlined there before, this idea that maybe energy stays there in some shape or form. And, and you know, whatever happens, whatever that is, throw that into the story. When you put that into the story, the feeling that that gives, mm. you know, the thoughts that that, that, that draws in, um, and then that, that's, you know, that's where these stories and these legends get us is, you know, um, it's not the necessarily the events that lead up to it. It is the tragic, you know, um, loss of time that this person has that they're still, you know, here. They're not, they're not able to move on. They're not able to get past it. They're stuck reliving this, this horrific event over and over and over and over again. You know, um, the media likes to grab hold of all these, you know, the poltergeist, the scary things. But the really scary thought of a ghost story um, is the idea that if something like that happened to you, yeah, you would be stuck for hundreds of years. You know, there are ghost stories in England that have been told, uh, what, you guys have got ghost stories that are seven, 800 years old. You know, imagine thousands of years of standing around a castle, watching everything else going on, and not being able to do anything about it. And all of a sudden, you see some kid walking around with a Nintendo Switch, and you remember back in your day, all you had was a stick. 
Well, another thing with that as well is like, let's suppose for a minute that ghosts were able, were conscious were, of what's going on. You're right. Yeah. Yes. There, there would be no basis for connection. I mean, obviously there's always going to be a basic connection between humans, regardless of time, but you know, you separate, if you, if we were to, if me and you were to go back in time, 800 years, Right, and try and interact with people. Well, firstly, we wouldn't understand what anyone's saying, and vice versa, because English language has changed. But more mm-hmm. important, more importantly, our basis for connection would be severed somewhat, or maybe not basis for connection, but like um, we would be in an alien world. Yeah, like like the where we draw. How can I put this? Our basis for um, comparison or, mm-hmm. you know, like being able to relate to one another, so on and so forth. We could only really relate to each other on the very most basic of things. Yeah, exactly. I, remember, I remember one time someone said like, oh, if, for example, it were possible to talk to animals and like they could talk in English, we wouldn't be able to understand them anyway because their frames of reference that's what i was trying to refer to the frames of reference would be so different that it just would not be something that you could even possibly even hope to comprehend yeah and and that's exactly right um to you know there are things today that to someone in the middle ages would be considered magic yeah. Demons, all kinds of, you know, a car. Are you kidding me? A car, an automobile, something we're used to seeing every day. Billions of people drive around, you know, they clog up the streets, they pollute the place. You drive one of those through uh, 13th century England and watch how fast you got a whole army wanting to kill you. Um, drop one in the middle of Egypt. All of a sudden they're building you a pyramid. Um, you know, these things, and these are, this is how everything evolves. And this is why it's important kind of to tell these stories. Um, because we have no, you know, our connection to the past is merely in these stories. Once we go to a new age, that past is done. There's no going back. You know, you can't go back to before there was a car. I mean, you can try, but the world's already found the car and we already know what it is. If we go get on horses now, we're going to be like, man, cars were so much cooler. You know, um, we can't go back to before there was flight. We already know we can fly across the ocean. We can't go back to before America was discovered. It's already been done. You can't, you know, just go back and go, nope, America wasn't discovered. If you go that way, you're going to fall straight off. Some guy gets in a boat, goes that way. Oh, look, America discovered it again. Now you can't discover it again. It's already been discovered. It's populated. We can't undo the past. But we can tell stories and try to explain to not only each other, but to those coming behind us what the past was like, what they had to live through, and try and get into that mindset through the stories. You know, I can tell you all day that, you know, oh, you know, 
uh, 18th century Americans didn't have running water and had to cook with fire. But I can't take you, but I can't just give you the facts and make you feel the story. That's just, I could state facts all day long, you know? Um, facts aren't going to get you into what it was really like without the story. Moving that forward, what's the most inspirational story you have or that you've ever been told? Uh, that's a tough one. Um, I don't have any inspirational, any real inspirational ones on my podcast, but you know, there is um, a story about um, this. Uh, it is no, I don't like that one either. Uh, probably the most inspirational story I would have to say would, would have to do with, um, and I'm trying to remember it now because it has to do with an Olympian who uh, came back and it, she was the uh, gymnast. And I can't remember the story now, but it was back in the 90s. And she came back. And no, I'm not talking about the ice skater Nancy Kerrigan. That wasn't really inspirational. That was, uh, that was two chicks fighting. No, it was a gymnast, and she had, like, this really bad injury, and she came back, and I think she won the gold. And I was really I was really touched back as a kid. Um, other ones would be, uh, you know, stories of people who survived events like 9-11. Mm -hmm. Like, there were these two guys. They were inside of the buildings when they came down. They were two um, Ports Authority cops, and uh, they were the last two brought out. Um, they had the buildings down on top of them for, I think it was almost 72 hours. Jesus. You know, of people digging through rubble, trying to find them. They were pretty much considered dead by that point, you know, and they ended up finding and rescuing them. And um, I met them and another guy uh, on October 6th of 2001, um, NASCAR, back when it was the Winston Cup um honored firefighters um little known fact i was a firefighter for several years and i was asked to participate in this event um and brought up to lowe's motor speedway free tickets got to go on a race and asked to you know walk out and basically be thanked for what i did as my job by nascar and the nascar bands but in that i got to meet three of the guys that were in ground zero and meet these guys and you know their survival enough is you know inspirational but hearing their story talking to them you know talking about the battles they had to do just to get back to being able to show up to an event like this you know is um that's majorly inspirational yeah that was inspirational for me particularly as a firefighter because um you know I, it felt like a big hit and a big personal hit considering how many of my brothers were lost in that event. But still we came back and we kept fighting. And um, another good one is the city of Charleston 
after um, uh, the events of the Sofer Superstore fire in 2008. You know, in 2008, um, I'm sorry, 2007, uh, nine firefighters lost their lives in a uh, commercial structure fire here in Charleston. Um, the town obviously was devastated, but the fire department uh, rebuilt, reorganized, restructured, came back, and has become one of the best departments in the country simply because they could not let those men die in vain. They had to do something about it. Those are stories of inspiration. Um, and it's hard to pick just one. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, and I think it kind of speaks to the idea that, you know, that often the, the greatest stories are just from everyday people like you and me that just you know, live in their lives and they do something to help one another, you know, in a meaningful way. And it, it literally changes lives, saves lives even. So it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your time as a, as a firefighter. Let's start with, what would you say is the most memorable moment for you as a firefighter? There was a uh, accident in uh, late one evening. I had uh, worked a full shift and then responded out to a call afterwards, um, which was a structure fire. And I was leaving the structure fire on the way home. I was planning to go home, get some dinner and go to sleep. Um, it was 10, 11 o'clock at night. And uh, we're coming home. And on the way back from where the structure fire was, a uh, intoxicated driver ran into a family of motorists or a family in a motor vehicle. Um, and it was a mother and five children. And these children were from six months to 15. My patient was a, a four-year-old little girl. Um, she couldn't tell me she was four because one or, because she had a bad laceration to her hand oh. and she couldn't hold up one of her fingers. Um, I bandaged her up, took care of her. I, I took care of that patient. I was, in, I was an EMT. She was my patient. Um, you know, I, she sticks with me. That, that whole scene sticks with me. Um, at first, we didn't know where the baby was. The car seat had actually been ejected from the vehicle. Um, and the baby was just fine, just chilling, you know, wasn't crying or anything. So that's why we didn't know where the baby was. Baby was just fine, just chilling, still in the car seat. What's going on? Where is everybody? I see all the flashing lights. She was dazzled by all the flashing lights. Um, I rode in the ambulance with my patient, the infant who was perfectly fine, and the oldest child, um, the 15-year-old son. And, you know, we went to the hospital. I met with the father. Um, I told him where, where, his, where his wife and everybody was. The worst injury they had was some minor neck injuries um, that the mother suffered um, because the brunt of the impact was on the driver's side, of course. Um, and I think the son had like an injured leg. Um, I believe his, I believe he had a, a fracture to the lower leg, uh, tip fib is what we call it. But other than that, he was, he was, you know, fine. Everybody walked away with minor scrapes and bruises. 
Oh, wow. And of course, you know, it was miraculous. Now, of course, the drunk guy, uh, he walked away with nothing except for a nice trip to uh, jail. Right. For, you know, nearly killing five people. But um, <laughs> we had a guy that used to work with, I used to work with, he was a paramedic. And he gets on scene, he's this big, tall, you know, he's kind of, he's kind of skinny, but you know, he's muscular and he gets there and he sees that we're working on a kid and he hears he was drunk and he gets angry and turns to go after the drunk guy. And I'm like, Oh no. And his wife happened to be on the scene and she's like, Lindy, Lindy, no, 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 you can't do that. Leave him alone. And I'm like, Oh, this would have been interesting to watch. But fortunately, the drunk guy got dealt with by the police and not by the paramedic, who likely would have uh, been much harsher than the law was. Um, but yeah, that, that one sticks with that one has always stuck with me. That was my first year. That was pre 2001. I was I was like brand I was brand new, um, maybe six months out of the academy when that one happened. Oh. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate it. Um, oh, no, no problem. Just a follow-up question. What would you say is the biggest lesson or takeaway from your time as a firefighter? Every life is precious. You know, um, lots of people, they don't value life like they should you know um there are things that can happen in the blink of an eye that can change your life and you can have no control over it um so you need to kind of not only value your life but value the lives of those around you of your loved ones your friends uh because you never know what is going to happen outside that door you never know what's going to happen inside the door you do not have control over the future. We, we cannot predict fate. We cannot um, plan these things out. And not everything is in your control. Uh, we like to imagine that it is, but it's not. So you need to take life at what it is, which is an extremely valuable and important thing, and cherish everyone, um, even the lives of those you don't like. You know, you need to understand that life is, it's a very finite thing. And once it's over, it's over. There's, there's no coming back. We don't get a redo. We don't get a respawn. We're not coming back. This isn't a video game. Um, you know, I have worked on patients that were 90 some odd years old. And I have uh, worked on patients that were less than a year old. Um, I've had saves where they were in their seventies. I saved them when they were four or five, you know, it's, it's, it's not a look of the draw. It is literally just when it happens, it's going to happen. Um, you can't be prepared for it. You have to understand that if you're not treating it, as valuable as it is, 
you're going to miss it when it's gone. Thanks for sharing. A couple of final questions for you that I ask every guest. Okay. What's the biggest mistake you've made that you learned a valuable life lesson from? Um, I never took care of myself. I, uh, as, as I said, I used to be a firefighter. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that I'm not, and it's because I suffer from PTSD. Um, I, well, I was thinking of asking you about that, but I didn't want to press. But yeah, please continue. Yeah, I, I have, I'm, uh, I have uh, CPTSD um, and, uh, and other issues because I allowed, I didn't do the things that I needed to do to take care of myself when I needed to. Um, if I could give anybody any piece of advice, it would be to take care of yourself. And again, that's why I said life is so precious. Um, because I can't, uh, I've been through therapy. It's I'm going on five years of therapy now. I still can't do the things that I used to do. I can't, um, I still have those, you know, issue warning alarms that won't let me go out and do what I used to do. I can't, I can't run into a burning building anymore. I can't uh, ride on a uh, fire truck anymore because the sirens, the sounds, the sirens, they, they all are, they all are triggers. These are things that I loved, things that I, things that I lived for at one point in time. And they've been taken away from me because I didn't take care of my mental health. So uh, mental health is very important. And if you don't take care of it, it's going to become a problem. For sure. No, no problem. What's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received is that you don't fail until you quit. Um, you know, the, the, Chumbawamba's got a song. I get knocked down, I get back up again. Yeah. Um, as long as you are getting back up again, you're not done. Fight's not over. You only fail if you give up. You know, uh, yeah, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But sometimes to when you got to be a little insane. You know, we, we even mentioned it before. Cody Rhodes lost the fight. But it's not over unless Cody gives up going for that title, right? So failure only happens when you give up. Man, you lose on a failure. That's a lesson. Did I need to hear that right now? Thank you. Um, hey, no problem. What's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far? <sighs> biggest life lesson that I've learned so far is that you don't need to be huge. You don't need to be the best to be successful. You know, success is what you measure. Um, you know, I, it was it was actually uh, one I learned recently. Um, if you take and think of what you think of as successful in your mind at first. And then you go, well, okay, this is this thing. What makes that successful? And then you compare it to, you know, where you are. A lot of times you'll find out you are successful. You just have this imaginary thing in your head of what successful is. And because you're not there, you don't 
you don't appreciate your own success. You know, you don't have to be a movie star to be successful. You don't have to be the greatest cook to be successful. Take pride in the smaller successes. You know, be proud that you've got five years of podcasting and have an audience, you know, be proud that, you know, you're talking to guys from, you know, halfway around the world about firefighting and wrestling and storytelling. You know, these are things that not everybody does. These are things that are experiences that, you know, show that you're successful at what you do because you've got some guy from across the pond jumping on the freaking uh, chat with you. Um, success is measured by you and you don't have to measure it against anybody else. You know, if, if I had spent more time thinking about all the things that I did do right, you know, I became a firefighter, I became a fire instructor, I uh, was a dispatcher, I was a medic, I'm a father, you know, I've written two books. You know, if I looked at all my successes, then my failures don't really mean anything. You know, sure, I wrote two books and I have... 10 that I've just given up on because I didn't think they work. So what? I've got two that are out. I've succeeded twice. Um, you know, so what? I don't have 10,000 followers on TikTok. I've got 8,900. That's 8,900 successes. They liked something and started following me. Um, and that's where you have to, you have to understand is that measure your success against you. If you have done something and won, that's success. And when you realize that, you'll be a lot happier. I think <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting the way the universe works sometimes. This was definitely exactly what I needed to hear. And I know my listeners, people that follow me will be thinking right now see told you <laughs> so um yeah thank you so much man i appreciate it no problem final question for you do you have mm -hmm. any upcoming projects or final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners so um we have uh, pulled through the flames i've discontinued my partnership with um olympia publishing which is actually there in london um, and it's going to be re-released here in the next couple of months with a new cover. Um, it's follow-up will be coming out. Um, and it's going to follow through the flames, of course, is about firefighting and it's follow-up is going to follow, um, uh, the main character Wayne's son as he goes through the fire Academy. So both of those books will be coming out probably sometime in the next year. Um, of course, my uh, second book, red coats is still out. Um, red coats is a horror novella that uh focuses on a group of british soldiers of course redcoats uh coming back to take revenge on the city of georgetown's teenagers uh after they're uh awakened some 200 years later in the 1990s and uh yeah it's it's a fun it's a fun little horrific tale uh, of course you can catch my podcast at thecarolinastoryteller.com. Uh, we're wrapping up season one now. Season two will begin in January. don't have an exact date yet, but you can catch all of the episodes for season one. There's some bonus episodes this month because it's Halloween. We have uh, 
Let me tell you the movie, which is me and my son, Adam, going over horror movies. Uh, so far, we've uh, done Child's Play and Friday the 13th. Who knows what the other two bonus episodes will be? I'm not, I'm not giving them away. But uh, <laughs> they'll be showing up before the end of this month. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for appearing on the show and sharing your stories and just kind of giving us a, an insight into storytelling and also your experiences and everything in between. Thank you so much. Well, Christian, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And to your listeners, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed it. Absolutely. And to my listeners and followers, thank you so much, as always, for listening to, to the show or watching the show. I sincerely appreciate it. Please go out of your way to check out Jonathan's work. He's clearly very talented, as, as we've heard, and it's your opportunity to hear more and more stories. So there you go. Go check out his work. I'll make sure to leave links in the description. In addition, if you would like to support the show, I mentioned at the beginning, but if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review on Podchaser or alternatively on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to the show, please leave us a review. Please leave us your comments. Let us know what you think. It really, really helps the show out. In addition, check out the Discord Become a, uh, become a member of our community. Join the Patreon, patreon.com slash Christian Reeves. Support the show and get access to bonus content. And most importantly, be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.